Mark, great to see you. Thanks, Thanks for coming. Um, I want to kick off really talking about investing in general. Okay. Um, you know, uh, everyone has uh, a little insecurity, no matter where you are in America, uh, about Silicon Valley. Uh, they got Stanford, you know, all the big, you know, unicorns are coming out of there. Um, but you see Mark is very long on LA, as all of we are. And um, Steve Case is doing Rise of the Rest, which is about, you know, other communities. What are the chances for other communities to become big hubs for technology and innovation and ultimately investing? I mean, there's a lot of big hubs already. I'm, you know, we all tend to look at Silicon Valley, but the beauty of Silicon Valley isn't the money available for investment. It's the money available for exits. That's the only thing Silicon Valley has on, on Austin, LA, New York, Boston, Dallas, you know, Atlanta. You know, where there's smart kids, where there's smart people, there are smart opportunities. And so, I mean, I've said this to many a different mayor that don't, the money will find the brain power, but the challenge is finding the exits. And part of the problem is companies don't go public anymore. We're finally getting Snapchat to potentially go public in the near term future. But I mean, I, I don't understand the reticence to, to, to going public, you know. Um, and so I think if more companies start to go public from Dallas, Austin, LA, or whatever, I think that'll shift the balance of power very quickly. What do you think the reason they aren't going public? Is it, is it that they want that seven to nine year long ball that, that Facebook had, or are they afraid to be public company CEOs? I think they're afraid to be public company CEOs. They think culturally it'll change them. You know, you always hear the discussion of, well, I don't want to have to fight, you know, every quarter to hit a number and to explain to Wall Street, when the reality is, you know, fewer and fewer companies are, are issuing guidance every quarter. The reality is, look, just from a supply and demand perspective, 20 years ago when the, the dot-com thing hit, there were 9,000 public companies. Now there are 4,000 public companies. And when you talk to people at the different exchanges, they're seeing a, a net negative. Have, that's why NASDAQ and New York, they're all fighting each other for listings because so few companies are going public. So the reality is there's a ton of money that is only available to public companies that all these tech companies, all these companies in general are missing. So I, I think it's just plain stupid not to, to look at going public. And, and what does the street have to do with that? I mean, you know, uh, they're very myopic. They're looking at quarter quarter. They don't necessarily think long ball. What do they need to do to change? Or how does a, a company that's going to go public deal with them differently? That's easy, right? They want to make money. And so they're going to find ways to help you go public because there are so many investors. Look. Versus 20 years ago, there's so much more money. There's so much more um, access to information. 20 years ago, during the dot-com hit, you know, you had to depend on an analyst. They were the ones that had access to information, and they were the ones that would talk about a company because there, there really wasn't an internet that had all this generally available information. Now that's changed. The amount of information is almost overwhelming on, on any company. And so, you know, I don't think it's so much Wall Street. I think it's just the CEOs and their investors. And right now, you know, part two to all this is big public companies have learned that they don't have to invest in R&D. All they have to do is talk to their VC friends and buy their best companies. And rather than those companies going public and having to compete with that big public company, they'll just buy them, sure. right? We, we just saw that with Cisco and Applied Dynamics, right? Right before they're about to go public, just buy them, you know, eliminate a potential competitor. I think that's bad for everybody. And so if more and more companies go public, you'll see more and more competition. Imagine if Instagram went public. Imagine if Oculus, you know, lawsuit aside, went public. You know, there's so many examples of up and coming great companies, Twitch, 
that Amazon bought. Right? If all these companies were public, we'd be talking about this great renaissance and we'd be able to see all these companies and how they're doing and, and they'd be much more in the public conscious. Instead, Amazon buys Twitch, which is a great, brilliant acquisition. You know, Facebook keeps on buying companies. If those, you know, that, as a country, that's not good for us. And, and who else is out there? I mean, you know, you hear these, you know, all these isms, like, you know, the average company goes for 50 million and Google does X number of acquisitions a year and it's Facebook, it's Google, it's Amazon. Who else should be looking at these big technology companies? I and mean, certainly we're looking at AT&T buying Time Warner, um, you know, maybe some other, you know, uh, uh, consolidation of the media business. But like, why aren't we seeing more names picking off these companies in the Valley or, or any other startup hub? They are, they're, they, you know, but they're just smaller. They do it sooner so they don't have to report it. I mean, Apple, you know, buys company, small company after small company. If you look in the AI slash, you know, neural network slash deep learning slash machine learning slash computer vision world, you know, there, there's companies getting picked off left and right for five, 10, 20, 30, $50 million, but they don't need to be reported. And so, I mean, it, it's happening. It's just not the big, huge deals that you see. You've seen your colleague Dan Gilbert in Detroit, you know, try to um, catalyze Detroit to being a little bit of a startup hub. Are you thinking about that in, in Dallas? You know, how does that happen? Certainly Mark and his team have been huge and long on LA. We're talking about it constantly. I'm a transport, I just moved here. What do cities need to do to make it a hub? And do you have to move to San Francisco? I no. mean, you know, that's what people always say. I mean, look, if, if I the number of San Francisco investments I've made has dropped by 90%, Woo! you know, I mean, I've got a bunch of LA companies, but um, Dallas, you know, for tech in particular, or media, the cost for a startup is so low right now. You know, it's more about finding talent. Where are you finding smart people? Events like this are amazing, right? Because it's where you get to network and you get to make investments. And so it's not so much about, you know, people having to move. If anywhere where there's a, a good school, there's going to be a great student or five or 10 or 20. And, you know, to me, smart VC, smart investors, angel C, whatever it may be, are going to those schools. And so rather than saying, to, you know, and I'll, I'll work with entrepreneurs in Dallas, you know, I'll have a soft spot, whether it's on Shark Tank or anybody close by, and I'll try to help them. But the reality is, wherever you feel comfortable, wherever you have the most brain power, if, you know, I went to school at Indiana University, and so there's tons, Hoosiers, who, um, but, you know, there's tons of great talent there. So when I go back and talk to people there, I'm not like, come move to Dallas, let's make it the hub. I'm like, I can text, I can email, I can communicate, stay right there. So local VCs should really be partnering and, and frankly, investing in time with the universities to develop, develop yes. programs on coding and stuff like that. Look, it's all about smart people. Smart people have the ideas, smart people know, learn how to execute. It's not about a location, it's not about a desk. Having all these resources here in LA is great, but it's not like it's hard to go anywhere in this country to get access to resources. It's not like there's a gate around LA, at least not yet, for us to come, you know, and, and visit, you know? Coming soon. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm not as big on, look, we're, we're, someone who's in LA, I'm not gonna tell them to move anywhere else because like Tyre did a great job saying, there's so many great resources here. Somebody in Dallas, Austin, the same, the same thing, you know, it, it's more the brain, brain power matters to me, particularly now, we're, gonna, we're about to go with all the AI stuff, we're about to go through a technological period that is gonna just dwarf the last 30 years. What happens in the next five to 10 years is just gonna blow everybody away, and it's not about location at all. 
So what do you look for when you, when, as an investor, you know, um, if I grew up and there were rock stars and movie stars, today you want to be a, a, a tech leader, you want to be a mogul, you want to be a product guy. Um, and certainly you on Shark Tank is, you know, catalyzing Americans to be entrepreneurial even more, to think about technology and new companies. What do you look for when you're looking at an entrepreneur? How do you look at an investment? Um, do I think they're smart? Do I think they're, they understand the, the concept of continuous learning? Do I think they're willing to put in the time to execute? Do I think they're willing to sell? Do I think they care about making a profit? You know, and believe it or not, that last one is typically the hardest one to find. You know, oh, we got downloads, great, you know, or we got this, we got that, you know, but at some point you have to make money. And so I think that's really been a, a big part of the deciding factor, particularly obviously on Shark Tank. But, you know, again, now I, I spend, not of, you're talking about continuous learning, 90% of my reading right now is learning about neural networks, deep learning, adversarial networks. I mean, it's crazy, but... That, that is where everything is going. And so all of the, the investments I'm looking at making are something related to you know, the artificial intelligence world. So you, you, have, you have investment thesis. A lot of people, it's happenstance. It's the deal flow they have. It's the idea that they see, but you're actually zeroing in on now, that Now, right. Tip, in, historically, it's just, it, it's more happenstance, right? I like these people, you know. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. You know, Aaron Levy sends me an email, okay. <laughs> Travis sends me an email, man, your valuation's too high. Some you win, some you lose. Um, but, you know, now I think, again, look, I'm old. I got started in the PC industry. I was one of the first local area networking resellers in the country way back when. It, I saw what was happening early, and I got up early, right? Same with streaming, same with high definition, and yada, yada, yada. But now, right, artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning, whatever you're doing, if you don't understand it, learn it because otherwise you're gonna be a dinosaur within three years. I don't care if you just graduated from college. We talk about where people are gonna work and the types of jobs that are gonna be available. It's not so much what's going to be replaced. You know, Mark, um, Mark Andreessen says software is going to eat the world, right? Now, automation is going to eat the world. We went, when I, when I first got started, we automated mechanical things, right? You had a 10 key adding pad, you had a ledger book, you used a spreadsheet. Car construction. Yeah, whatever, right? Then you connected them into a network, a local area network. Then local area networks connected into wide area network. Then we got the network effect. Then we got, that gave us Facebook and, and Snapchat, etc. Now the process of automation is about to be automated, which means it's not going to be that long where what we think now is a phenomenal job programming might be gone. It's all math, right? All that math can be automated. And so the point being that we're going to go through a dramatic change. Wherever there's change, there's opportunity. And if you don't get caught up on that, you're, you're going to get left behind. And that's the excitement, and that's also the scary part. So let's shift to media. You know, for many years, you and I have talked about the, the future of video, what's going on in the media business. We're certainly seeing consolidation. You had Comcast and NBCU, AT&T, Time Warner's happening. I know you've recently given some testimony around AT&T. Um, what do you think's going on with the media business? We've got minutes dropping at television, yet quality of content is greater than ever before. Right. But users are slowly starting to disengage. And while cord cutting is not a major thing, that is the precursor to cord cutting. So why Time Warner, AT&T? Why does that make sense? And what do you think about the video business in general? Um, well, first of all, everything is content. Bits are bits. You know, we, back in the day, we used to go to a physical form of our entertainment or information, television, books, magazines, CDs, whatever it may be. 
that's gone. Now it comes to us. And so whatever it is that can get to us in the most efficient and most entertaining way, that's what we're going, going to grab onto. And so when I testified saying that AT&T Time Warner was no big deal, it's because the reality is most of our content doesn't come from them, right? It comes from Facebook. It comes from Snapchat and that, you know, et cetera. And that, that, those sources are growing. You know, I saw something that said of um, digital ad revenue growth, Facebook and um, Google are grabbing 85 or 86 percent of it. You know, that tells you everything you need to know. And so it's not about video per se. It's about where are we finding our, um, our entertainment or how is our entertainment finding us? So what's all the scuttlebutt in Washington about this may not be a good deal for consumers? I mean, if an investment banker comes into you now in the media business, they show you a slide, which is uh, Google, Apple, and Facebook, which are basically like, you know, nine feet tall. And Netflix. You know, and Netflix. Yeah. And then AT&T and Time Warner is like a little kid brother. Right. And, uh, you know, NBCU, Comcast is a runt, and then everybody else is a subscale play. I mean, what are they talking about? We have a president that's never sent an email in his life. Amongst other things. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the drill, right? They, you know, when I sat there and I looked at all these faces, you know, you, you can tell when the eyes are starting to glaze over. And it's just, they don't think about these things, right? It's, you know, the way things have always been done, that's why television is such a big driver for them in terms of communicating with their base. And so, you know, it, that's just opportunity. They just don't see it. So I, I think you haven't sold a share of Netflix. You'd like some more Netflix? Yeah, I mean, I have not sold a share of Netflix. My two biggest holdings are Netflix and Amazon because I think they are the two best startups in the industry with Google and Facebook being good startups behind them. And what are your thoughts on Amazon and video in general? you think they're the comer? Yeah, I think Amazon video is good, but it's more a placeholder, right? It's a, the, their marginal cost to deliver video to their prime members is minimal to them. And so if, if they're, you know, they obviously have the data. Um, and if the, their customers see it as a perceived high-value um, feature, they'll keep on offering it. So I don't think they're trying to set the world on fire from a video perspective. Netflix, on the other hand, look, to, to take it one step further, how many great content companies are there, right? There's Disney, there's Netflix, Amazon's trying, right? After that, yeah, I mean, that's it right now in terms of just constant, you know, yeah, get out of the park. you know, because content, every, everybody thinks they have the fuel. Content's the hardest thing ever. Right? Music, video, films, quick story. 10 years ago, a little bit more than 10 years ago, a guy emails me. The guy's name is Alex Gibney. No one's ever heard of him. He goes, I got this footage. Best doc director in the world. Got this footage from this company called Enron. It's exclusive. We, have it. we want to do a documentary on Enron. I'm like, that's cool. What kind of footage is it? Oh, and he gives me the details, da, da, da. There's people who took home videos inside Enron. And I said, how much is it going to cost? He goes, $770,000. I said, let's do it. 12 minutes, I greenlit this movie called Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Got nominated for an Academy Award. At the time, it was a top 10 grossing documentary ever. I'm thinking, this shit's easy, right? Next, <laughs> the next movie I get, right, my partner Todd Wagner comes in. I got, we got this black and white movie about um, um, news make, you know, the, the news business. Um, it's called Good Night and Good Luck. It's $8 million. We're going to split it with this other company, $4 million each you want to do. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Two minutes. We say yes. Gets nominated for six Academy Awards. I'm going, this shit's easy. You haven't heard of a movie we've made since, right? <laughs> That's the problem with content, right? It's hard. Got it. So a little bit of a shift. So we're, I'm at Sundance. You know I love movies. And I, I go to see the Gawker documentary, Nobody Speak, about free speech. 
And when the Gawker case was going on with Peter Thiel, um, my feeling was there were no heroes in that case. And I probably let my own personal um, you know, taste get in the way of saying, you know, Gawker maybe deserved it at the time. And I, I think I was wrong. And I think it really was a First Amendment issue. And watching this movie with Floyd Abrams, who's a First Amendment lawyer, and Margaret Sullivan from the Washington Post, I am terribly scared about the safety of the Fourth Estate. Mm -hmm. It protects us. And there are times where the media has gone overboard or people have done their jobs. And if there's a, an upside to Trump, I think people are doing them. But how are we going to protect the Fourth Estate? Just by doing what we do, right? I mean, some, sometimes you got to say what the fuck and just do what you do. And I think now is as important a time as ever. You know, we're, I was just talking to Jared. In the bigger scheme of things, what hopefully is less than four years, um, it's like college. How fast did college go by? Right. And so I think Trump was in Delta Tau Chi. In, in, in fact, <laughs> I don't think he got in. Right. Um, but but he could have been a good flounder. But in any way, I'm dating myself. But um, but Animal House guys. Yeah. But in, seriously, now, I mean, if 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 I'm at The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, I'm getting juiced. Right. Because when someone, I mean, he's putting media front and center. Now you, you're going to get your, to do your job and people are going to pay attention. What you can't do is get caught up in trying to make him happy or his followers happy. So everyone got summoned to Trump Tower. I can tell you that I called some of the network heads, some of the heads of the newspapers. I said, you don't get summoned anywhere. You don't make deals with politicians. I mean, does that scare you? Do you think that's happening? I mean, I think there is this thing where they are so shell-shocked. Um, I saw you on Twitter talk about Democrats and, you know, compromise right. uh, and Bannon. And, and that no, I said negotiate, not no compromise. Nego negotiate. Big difference. Um, I see that happening right now where the system is so shell-shocked that I do believe that sometimes the media and or politicians are playing into his hand. Nah, he's not that smart. Um, and so... I feel so good today. Yeah. Look, he's the president. If he calls me up and says, would you come for a meeting? Of course you're going to say yes. Does because I meet with this guy mean I'm compromising my principles? No. Like, if you go back on my blog, Blog Maverick, I used to crush Obama on how he dealt with entrepreneurs. He invited me to the White House. Okay, we, we, we discussed it. I still crushed him afterwards, but we agreed on some things, disagreed, and we got to be friends, right? Trump, just because he invites you in means nothing, right? It's a my, photo op. Yeah, it's a photo op. My history with him, right? It just says everything. You know, one minute we're getting in these stupid Twitter battles, right? The next minute when he first came out, look, I was the first guy to support him when he came out. I said he was great because he was candid. You know, he said what was on his mind. He wasn't scripted. And I meant it. I just didn't realize how stupid he was, you know? And, and so, you know, you live and you learn. But when you go to meet him, and here's the, here's the challenge with Don, with Don, if we're going to go to politics now. When you sit it seems down, to seep into everything, and everything, it's so important right? to all of us. Look, when you sit down with him or talk to him on the phone, he's personable. He's nice. You know, he, he, you come across, and think, okay, this guy's all right. You know, there's nothing wrong with him. And then for whatever reason, the minute you walk out the room, he, you know, he, he's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he goes on all these tweet storms and everything that we've seen and the, the crazy stuff he said and, and tried to do. You know, and so I think what people have to recognize, you have to remember why he won the election, right? I fell into the same trap. Media is, has to be careful not to fall in the same trap. We fall in the, same, the trap of first rolling our eyes and then trying to convince, thinking we're going to use logic to convince his supporters to change their minds.
It doesn't work. It won't work. There, you know, it, it's like a wedding, right? You can't convince somebody who just went to a wedding that the bride or groom was ugly, right? It just doesn't work. And so I tweeted and I've, I said um, in an interview that 23% of the population vote of um, eligible voters voted for him, right? 25% of eligible voters voted against him. 52% didn't vote. It's not, I've given up trying to convince, so if someone trolls me on Twitter, it's not, or wherever, I'm not, I'm not trying to convince you why he's an idiot, right? So or you're why not changing voting. minds, but there are lots of undecideds is where we're going to go. That's all where we, that's where the media should change his mind. You know, when he tweets, so what? What percentage, nine, 15% to 20% of adults in the United States are on Twitter, yeah. right? And so, and nine, and I saw some, 9% of people use Twitter for news, you know, a little higher percentage on Facebook. We don't get information from him from his tweets. We get <clears throat> information from all of our media sources that we use. And so how the media covers his tweets is more critical than anything he actually But well, we are getting baited. I mean, I, I see the tweets, I can't help myself. It's like the Oreos in the mini bar. I mean, it drives <laughs> me crazy, you know? Yeah, but that's the whole thing, right? Like, you wake up in the morning. He's the only person I get an alert on, right? And so you wake up in the morning, you go, are you fucking kidding me? How many people do that every morning when they see his tweet? Literally. Right. You know, John Oliver said, you know how I said we were down here? Well, we're now down to China. Right. But that's who he is. That's who he is. It's not going to change. And, and do you think at all that it is a strategy or a plan or an affliction, the way he reacts? It's an affliction. Look, if you've ever seen me at a basketball game screaming and yelling at refs <laughs> versus the other, you know, 22 hours in that day, you couldn't find a person I've yelled at in the last 20 years, right? Except during those 20, 48 minutes of a basketball game. That's my affliction, right? We're all wired, Oreos at the mini bar, we're all wired a certain way. That's who he is, right? It ain't gonna change, right? But what is critically important is how we respond. Demonstrations, yes, but they have to be peaceful, right? They have to be civil. Right? Because that's what's going to get everybody to start to think twice. Because at some point, results matter. At some point, everybody, whether you voted for him, didn't vote, or voted against him, all the evidence is going to be right in front of you. The jobs report you know, is going to be the jobs report. The unemployment rate is going to be the unemployment rate. And then for each of us individually, our, you know, our tax, not even, our taxes are going to be our taxes, but our, our paycheck, the net of our paycheck is going to be the net of our paycheck. At some point, either it changed or it didn't. And we're going to go through this process where he blames it on the media because you have to have a bad guy. Then he'll blame it on somebody who works for him and say, yeah, so-and-so screwed up. I'm going to give him another chance. You guys got it wrong. And then he'll fire that person, and then they'll bring in another person. And then at some point, we'll all realize it's not us. It's him, right? But you can't try to change everybody's mind. You can't just accept him. You can't normalize him. You want to demonstrate peacefully where you can, but you don't want to go out there and try to change people's minds. Just communicate, and it's, but it is hard to be patient when he's such an idiot. So let's talk about, you know, we talked about tweeting and we talked about social media. You and I had a conversation about two months ago where we were trying to sort of brainstorm around how you deal with trolling on social networks. Yeah. And I had dinner with Dick Costolo uh, night before last, uh, former CEO of Twitter, and he mentioned here that he thought that he had handled 
the trolling on Twitter improperly. Right. And you had come up, come up with an idea in our conversation about how to handle it as, as one of the ideas. And I mentioned it at dinner, and he literally looked at me and he said, brilliant, I should have done it. Do you remember what the idea was on how you deal with trolling? Well, we're working on an app to do just that. But Of course um, you are. Why not? Um, but the reality is we need to take control of who responds to our tweets, right? And so if I say something and Jason wants to troll me, I should have the opportunity to kick him out of the thread. It's that simple. And I should have the opportunity by, trollers don't troll because they want to say something. Trollers troll because they want somebody to notice them, right? And so if you can just extract them from a thread. So if I say something about the president and 10,000 trolls or more show up, I can bam, 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 exclude you from this thread or permanently, they're not, they can't troll anymore. Or in general, I think what you had said in the email was just allow the permission for the, for the tweeter to say you can reply or you can't reply. Well, you yeah, can retweet or you right? can't reply. Same difference, yeah. Yep. And so if I say, Jason, you can't reply to my tweets, you're done. Or, and the other part of it was, I can make all my replies private. And that's a big part of what we're doing in this new app. And so if all my replies are initially are private, and then I can say public, 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 just as an option, gone. Can Twitter fix the problem? I mean, can they? There must be something in their code that prevents them from doing all this, right? Because common sense says it shouldn't be this difficult. And I get that they're trying to say we want to be open and, and you know, free speech, et cetera, except for hate speech. But there's got to be something else. And do you, I mean, you, you look at big companies, you look at Google, you look at Facebook, their business is advertising. Their, their way of getting it is engagement. These things breed engagement. There is, a, there is like really a clash between monetization and safety and decency. How are these companies handling it? I mean, you know, what, what, what are they to do? Artificial intelligence, You're, it's going to be the machine that does it. You think I'm kidding, I'm telling you. Every, you we all need to really start thinking about shrinking our digital footprint because everything you say, do, or write online is going to be data input, not even to an algorithm, but to a neural network, et cetera, et cetera, that is going to come back and know things about us that we didn't know about ourselves. I'm going to be even more alone. That's very sad. Oh, yeah. um, let's switch to, to sports for a second. So you want to talk, keep on talking about these really uplifting, exciting. Listen, you know, Mark and I have some interests we wanted to bring up, and you've got opinions. So this yeah, is I the do. forum, baby. Um, let's talk about sports for a second. So. Um, obviously, you know, the NBA, the NFL, MLB, these are part of American life. Mm -hmm. um, they've largely been monetized uh, through television and television deals. And yet there is a, a generation that is disengaging slowly with television. And that's where a lot of the money comes. So how do you feel about sports rights going forward and the direct-to-consumer um, possibilities for an NBA? What should, what should you be thinking about and what should Adam Silver be thinking about for the future for new audiences? Well, you know, we started talking a little bit before about video. Um, Video isn't necessarily TV, right? And the thing about TV, historically, is there were 500 channels, and once people turned on their TV, how do you get them to go to your network, right? And sports were great. Live sports were even better. And so sports allowed it to stand up. You had to go there to get the live sports. It's an even bigger problem to solve online over the top because there's an unlimited number of choices. So when there's 500 choices, the value may be here, but when there's unlimited number of choices, the ability to attract an audience at all, even though the numbers in absolute terms might be smaller, 
is dramatically higher. And yet you think sometimes the leagues have such an ego about we are a definitive, there's, there's never going to be a replacement for us. I don't believe that with Next Generation. That's why I asked the question about Well, yeah, I mean, just look at League of Legends and eSports, et cetera. And look, here's, here's the, the net net of the problem. I have a seven-year-old son, um, a 10-year-old daughter, and 13-year-old daughter. But particularly with my seven-year-old son now, um, we go and he, he decides he wants to play baseball. <laughs> yeah. Watching seven-year-old kids play baseball is different than when we were seven years old playing baseball because they have no ideas what the rules are because they've never watched a game. Basketball and soccer they get because it's pretty simple. My son signed up for flag football. I'm like, you want to watch football? No. I, I mean, I want to play Minecraft. I want to watch Minecraft videos, you know, whatever games, you know, um, Clash of Clans, etc. You know, no, but this will help you learn the rules and you'll get a... No. You go to his flag football game. Hike. <laughs> right? No, run. Or, you know, <laughs> kids catch the ball. It's crazy. And so that's the real problem. So for all of us, you know, earlier generations, you know, sports, there was some aspect of religion to it, right? I grew up in Pittsburgh. You were a Pirates fan. You were a Steelers fan. Or you didn't show your face, right? And so... That's dissipating quickly. That's our big, it's not, the medium is not the problem. It's the indoctrination, the lack of indoctrination, that's the problem. But also the games seem to be, I mean, obviously for safety reasons, the games are slowing down. Football's slowing down because of... of football's in deep shit, right? I would not let my son play, play football. Period, end of story. You know, and uh, there's just some surveys that came out that showed, I was surprised that 43% of millennial parents would let their kid play professional football. But when you see football players themselves retiring in their mid-20s, right within the prime of their careers, that tells you all you need to know. And so I, I think football has got a real long-term problem that has nothing to do with, you know, sports um, TV rights. And what about the NBA? Should they be changing the way the game is played, the way the game is shot? No, the NBA is perfect in every way except for the Clippers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, my best, my best friend uh, emailed me before he knew I was going on stage with you and he said, I want you to ask Mark about leadership and competition. Uh -huh. And I always get emails from people saying, I know you're in the curation business, I want to have a curation startup, can you give me yeah. some advice? And I'm thinking, I'm a good guy, people help me, but this guy may be a competitor. And he goes, you know, your, your best player, Dirk, um, was thinking about helping train a player from another team over the right. summer. Um, you're a leader. You're on Shark Tank. You're the, you know, American leadership. Tell me what you think about that. Oh, I, you know, okay, so there's what I'd say to the media, and then there's the truth, right? And when it comes to sports. President Trump, ladies and gentlemen. Right? Um, look, that's, we love the guy. We would never trade him, bam, two days later. Um, you know, it, but that, that's sports. It's not quite as important as, as presidential politics. But look, I told the media that, of course, I didn't want him working with them. But the reality is, I'm, pr you know, I'm proud of having a guy like Dirk that everybody looks up to. And the fact, if he wants to help support the next generation of NBA stars, that's good for all of us. And you also told him to take the charge, essentially. Yeah, right. Well, let him fall on the ground. Exactly. But, but again, back, back to NBA. Um, is there anything the NBA should be doing differently with media to make it more of a sport for the future? Um, I think we have to work a lot more closely with games geared towards kids. Like, the Mavs did uh, put together um, an American Airlines Center Mavs game for Minecraft. 
Now we had to fight Microsoft over stuff, but and I pushed the NBA to do that. We're getting more into esports. I think NBA 2K becoming a team sport that is competitive and you know has professional opportunities. That will make a huge difference because sport gaming, you know, 2K in particular, every kid who plays knows every player down to the 15th player on every roster, and that's a big advantage we have. Cool. Listen, Mark, thanks for coming out. I can tell you, I am a transplant to LA. It's never been a better time to be here. And entrepreneurs out here understand. And by the way, I've had a place in Manhattan Beach for 20 years. Awesome. So. Um, this, uh, this town understands brand, storytelling, data, product, and technology. That is a unique thing. LA rocks. I am long on LA. Thank you, guys.